Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Jason Day, your host, and we're excited to have Robbie Gallaty with us today. Robbie is the senior pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. He's also the founder of Replicate Ministries, which equips men and women to be disciples who make disciples. Robbie has written several books, including most recently, The Forgotten Jesus, How Western Christians Should Follow an Eastern Rabbi. On today's episode, we discuss the importance of understanding the Jewishness of Jesus, we explore why disciple-making has largely become a forgotten practice, and Robbie shares the aha moment of his entire ministry with us. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Robbie Gallaty. Robbie, welcome to Church Leaders Podcast. Uh, We're so thankful that you took the time out of your busy schedule to share with other pastors and ministry leaders. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I know that you have just uh, released a new book entitled The Forgotten Jesus. And so the first question I have for you is, why do we need to rediscover the forgotten Jesus? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, let me me just, if you don't mind, let me tell you a little bit of my testimony. And really, you know, Jason, how I got here. And I think that'll really, because people ask me, how is it that a uh, Southern Baptist pastor raised in America, Westerner, is so passionate about the Eastern culture and the Jewishness of Jesus? And uh, I was actually radically saved from a life of addiction. Uh, I was raised uh, Roman Catholic, very religious, and uh, heard uh, about Jesus throughout the year, but didn't have a relationship with him. Heard the gospel in college, and then came back, and uh, through a series of events, I was a bartender and a bouncer. I was driving home from work, November 22nd, 1999, 18-wheeler, 65 miles an hour, came across two lanes of traffic and rear-ended me at 65 miles an hour. And uh, my car went into the guardrail, went to the doctors. They said, it's amazing you didn't get killed in the accident, hurt worse uh, than you were. And they said, we're going to send you home with four things, Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. So, man, I'm, I'm 22 years old, never taken drugs before in my life, addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I moved to street drugs for about three years, heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, marijuana, uh, times were good in the beginning, and then toward the end, lost uh, eight friends to drug and alcohol-related deaths. Six went to prison, went to two rehab treatments. Long story short, I remembered the gospel from seven years before. God, God just planted some seeds in my life in college. I got on my knees, and in my immature mind, this is what I said to the Lord. I said, God, if you're real, I'm going to repent of my sins. I knew I was a sinner, put my faith in you, and I'm going to go after you with the same intensity I did to get high. I mean, what could happen? Right? I mean, I have nothing to lose. And so uh, I had this radical Paul-like conversion. And shortly after I came to the Lord, I started reading the Bible at face value. You know, I started, I didn't have a dad that was in the ministry. I didn't have a pastor or friend. I, I didn't really have a church at the time, but I was reading the Bible at face value and uh, started to see some of these connections from the old and the new. And guy came up to me, an offhand comment. I was at a camp and here's what he said. He said, do you know that Jesus Christ fulfilled the three messianic miracles that the Jews were looking for the Messiah to do? And I said, I didn't even know there were three, right? (laughs) Right. He said, said the first one was to cleanse a leper. Uh, The reason this was a messianic miracle was because anytime a man touched a leper, he would be unclean. Jesus, we know, did that. The second miracle was to cast out a demon from someone who was dumb and deaf. 
So they dumb in the sense that they couldn't speak, deaf in the sense that they couldn't hear anything. So there was no way to make contact with the man. And the Pharisees back then had this protocol. You had to make contact with the demon. You had to ask its name. You had to cast it out. We know Jesus did this on one occasion uh, when he said legion. There are many. Uh, he said Jesus performed that one. But the big one was the Messiah would come and heal a man born blind. And uh, he said, remember John chapter 9, when this man, it says five times in the text, John 9, this man was blind from birth. He said the reason that's a messianic miracle is because only God could create the faculties and the ability out of nothing to see. And so he just kind of went on. And I began this journey uh, over a decade ago of just trying to find out the culture and the context of Jesus. And uh, any Old Testament scholar will tell you, New Testament scholars will tell you, there are three elements to understanding the Bible. There's the, the words of the text, obviously, but there's the geography of the land in which the, the Bible is written, but also there's the culture. And I think, Jason, what's happened is we have, in a sense, missed this Eastern culture that Jesus was raised in. Remember, Jesus is not a Western, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, surfer-dude American, right? As right. we see sometimes in the movies. He's a Middle Eastern, dark-skinned rabbi, and he would have spoken a certain way. He would have taught a certain way. His disciples would have heard a certain way. So that's what I'm trying to do in this book. I'm just trying to make these connections from both the old and the new. Okay, for pastors, when it comes to preparing our messages— what are some insights, Robbie, that you can offer when it comes to balancing our understanding of the Old Testament with the New? Yeah, and so, okay, so here's something to think about, and we, we know this for pastors and, and uh, teachers of the Word of God. The best commentary on Scripture is Scripture, right? And so what, we, what I'm trying to do here is uh, I'm, I'm making the case that in order to appreciate the New, we have to understand the Old. Now, the challenge for most of us uh, who live in the Western Hemisphere, North America, is that we migrate, and those who are listening will agree, you normally migrate, like I have, to the New Testament. So much so that when a guy follows Christ or a girl comes forward and says, hey, I want to repent of my sins, put my faith in Christ, I'm born again, what do we normally tell them to read, and where do we normally tell them to start? In the Bible, in the Gospel of John. Now, think about that. We would never do that with a book. Like, like, we'd never pick up a book and say, hey, listen, go three-fourths of the way in and start on page 290. We, we'd never do that, but we do that all the time. And so the idea is, is we can preach the New Testament, but, but the challenge I, I'm trying to make with guys, particularly preachers, teachers of the Word, is that make sure you're making these connections to the old. Let me, let me give you a perfect example. I'm preaching this week on John chapter 19, when Jesus says, it is finished, right? So we know... A lot of things are finished there. The plan of redemption is complete. Uh, the pain of, of redemption, Jesus bore that pain for us, the wrath of God, the sins of mankind. But also, I think we miss the pain of redemption and really the price of redemption if we don't understand Genesis 22. So if we look to the cross, we see a man dying for our sins, Jesus, as the only son of God. But we really can't understand that until we look at it through the lens of Genesis 22, which is Abraham, the father of many nations, and his son Isaac. And here's a couple insights from that text. When you look at the wording of Genesis 22, you see right away God saying, take your son, your only son, who you love. Well, who spoke like that? God did. 
with the baptism of Jesus, remember? Right, right. This is my only son, my beloved son, in whom I love. Very same language. When Abraham goes to the place of sacrifice, he goes and cuts wood, and if you go back and look at it, he places the wood on Isaac's shoulder, and it's Isaac as the son, the one and only son, who carries the wood to the sacrifice. It would have been a wonderful picture of Jesus carrying his own cross to his own death. But the amazing connection here is this. Even after Jesus dies, when he said, it is finished, and he is the once and for all sacrifice, the difference between Abraham and Isaac and God and Jesus is this. When Abraham raised the knife to sacrifice his son, God intervened and provided a sacrifice in his place. On the cross, as we know, there's no one to step in for God. There's no one to say, hold it. There's no one to say, hey, there's another option. There's another plan. We know that the hand of the Father came down on the suffering Son. But here's an interesting thing to think about. And we miss this in the Western world. We don't know much about anguish and grief over death like they do in, in, a, in a Jewish culture, a more Hebraic culture. When the veil was torn in the temple, immediately after Jesus died, remember the veil was torn. And we know it was the separation of God and man now removed. It's the barrier between us and God now destroyed. The sacrificial system is no more. But it's more than that. Here's why. In the Old Testament, whenever someone was in deep anguish or someone was in despair over the death of a loved one, what did they do, Jason? Remember? I mean, they would take their clothes— And they would tear them from top to bottom, right? They would just rip them into. Remember right. Jacob, when his, when his sons came to him, supposedly saying that their brother Joseph had died, they dipped that technicolor coat in, in the animal blood, and they said, Father, your son has died, the one you love. And what did Jacob do? He took his clothes from top to bottom, and he ripped them in anguish. When David hears of King Saul and the death of Saul, what does David do? He rips his clothes in despair and anguish. Could it be that the reason the gospel writers say that the veil was torn in two, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, could it be hinting at a picture of a loving father in anguish over the death of his one and only son? Wow. Yeah. So as a a pastor is um, preparing a message, let's say. What would you say to them as they're in the New Testament, they're they're processing through, let's say they're in the Gospels, how can you encourage them to reach back into the Old Testament? Are there there particular resources, tools, um, things that that you have developed over your ministry, or maybe even an approach that helps tie those two things together? Well, you know, that's really why I wrote the book. Um, I have studied this— you know, through the years with the Jewish Roots Movement or the Hebraic Roots Movement, what happens is uh, a lot of guys or girls will start off good. You're starting to see some of these connections. You're uncovering the Jewishness of Jesus. But but the challenge is I've seen a lot of people end at a very different place, right? So they start off good, and, and we know some of these guys personally we, in, in the world today, where they end up denying the Bible. They deny the existence of hell. They deny the inerrancy of Scripture. And so after reading for years and years some of these these resources and really adopting a mindset of eating the fish and spitting out the bones, right, because you've got to have a lot of discernment here on some of these things, I decided to write this work. And here's the point I tell people. You don't have to know the Eastern culture well. You don't even have to know about the Jewishness of Jesus to read the Bible. 
because we're going to be able to read the Bible, fill with the Spirit of God. Because of the Reformation, we're able to read the Bible and understand and discern ourselves. With the Eastern mindset, with the way to think like Jesus or to see things like Jesus, the fact that Jesus taught in parables, well, that's a certain way of teaching. The fact that Jesus answered questions with questions, I talk a lot about that, and that was a rabbinical technique. Jesus is not being a jerk, right? Jesus is not being rude. That's just the way he taught and, 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 and the way he spoke. But basically what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring people back into the Word of God so that you read this Bible, which you've always read in black and white in a sense, but it comes alive in color. And so it's kind of like seeing an old movie. When you see the sound of music and you see it in black and white, and then all of a sudden you see it in color, it's the same movie, same word, same script, but it has an amazing experience that comes along with it. It's a different encounter than before. And that's really what this has done for me. Yes, that brings more life to our reading of scripture. Well, let me give you let me give you one more if, sure. if you don't mind. Yeah. Here, here's here's really one that's really come alive for me. When when I was uh, reading the Bible, I came across the fact that Joseph, Jesus's earthly father, was a carpenter. We've always said that. We've seen movies with that. It's the word tecton. So it's a man who works with his hands. And it's interesting if you put that back into the context of Jesus's day, you realize that 90 plus percent of the homes were not built with wood like in Western America. They were built with stone, right? They're built with brick and rock. You also look at the fact that Jesus's hometown of Nazareth was a stone's throw, literally right down the street away from a booming Greco-Roman city by the name of Zippori or Sepphoris which would have been a city that was being built at the time of Jesus's upbringing. And every able man who was a tecton, craftsman in the community, was enlisted to work at this city. Now, between Nazareth and Sephoris, or Zippori, you would find the largest rock quarry in all of Israel. Now, why is that important? Because you can make a real case for the fact that Joseph, Jesus's father, was a stonemason, right? Yes, he could have been a carpenter. He could have made door frames and tables, and uh, he could have made chairs. But it's highly likely he was a stonemason. Now, why is that important? People are saying, well, that's that, not a big deal. Think about this. Passages that Jesus preach start to come alive. For example, when Jesus said to Peter, after he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, what, is, what does Jesus say? Upon this piece of wood, I'll build my church, right? Nope. <laughs> no, no. Look what he says. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. When it says uh, in Peter that uh, we're building you up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, as living stones. So you guys are little stones built on what Peter said. Jesus is, in Acts 4, the cornerstone. He, he is the essential stone upon which the whole house is built. Now, think about it this way. If we see Jesus as a disciple of his father, as a stonemason, then it really makes us think that Jesus now, as a loving father, is molding and shaping his followers, hewing them, if you will, out of the rock into the, the wonderful creation of his son. And so God is a loving father who is shaping us as spiritual stones. It makes perfect sense when you put it back in the context. Right, that's good. It's, you know, God is, is chipping away at those things in our lives that need to be removed and helping us become the, the mm, men and women good. he created us to become. That's that's so good. I love that. A couple years ago, you wrote a book called Rediscovering Discipleship. 
And yeah. you speak of disciple making in that book as a forgotten practice. And I'm just curious, how is the forgotten Jesus related to the forgotten practice of disciple making? <laughs> Great connection. So the forgotten practice of making disciples is connected to the forgotten Jesus in the sense of we have through the years, I think, focused on making Christians, right, or making decisions or even making converts, which are all great. But Jesus challenged us in Matthew 28 to make disciples. Now, if you take that word disciple and you compare it to the word Christian, you'll be astonished at the usage of the word. Now, think, for example, how many times is the word Christian used in the entire New Testament? It's actually only used three. Two of the times, according to Harper's Bible Dictionary, it's used in a derogatory manner. Right. Those little Christians, these these followers of Christ, the man who died on the cross. Right. It wasn't until later in the New Testament in the book of Peter where we see it in a positive term. But the word disciple, on the other hand, is used in the New Testament two hundred and sixty nine times. Get this, Jason, two hundred and thirty eight times in the Gospels alone. Wow. Now, why is that important? Because Christian is more of a static term where disciple is more of a dynamic term. It has this, this action that follows it. And so what I challenge people in rediscovering discipleship is this. I believe this with all of my heart. A return to biblical discipleship, I think, will enact the reformation of the 21st century. Now, I know that's a bold statement, but, but hear me out. If you study the reformation of the 16th century, 1500s, with Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses, what made that amazing was this. Any man or woman filled with the Spirit of God could take the Word of God and discern and understand it themselves. And it was the shot across the bow of Christianity. Now think about discipleship. In a very similar fashion, any man or woman of God filled with the Spirit of God, wielding the Word of God, can invest in the people of God for the glory of God. And what I tell people is this, and if you get nothing else, uh, get this. We're not just saved from something. We're actually saved for something. And so for years, we've looked at baptism as the finish line when actually baptism is the starting line. And so people say, well, why are you so passionate about disciple making? My testimony doesn't end with, with just coming to understand the Jewishness of Jesus. Nine months in, Jason, I don't know if I told you this, but David Platt, who was a church member, walks across Edgewater Baptist Church and says to me as a nine-month-old believer, hey, would you want to meet once a week to study the Bible, memorize scripture, and pray? Now, David is not the author of Radical. He is not the president of the International Mission Board. He looks about 12 years old back then, right? <laughs> now, David, no, I love David, but he looks about 18 now. But back then, he looked 12. And man, he began to pour his life in mine. He baptized me. He stood in my wedding. He, he took me to Indonesia for my first mission trip. He encouraged me to go to seminary. He gave me a passion for expository preaching. He gave me a, a, a passion to reach the lost. And so I tell people, I'm the product of discipleship. What could happen if we really got serious about making disciples in our church? Not just converts, not just decisions, making disciples. I think we'd see a more first century, in a sense, a more biblical model of church. Yeah, Robbie, that, that brings a question. Why do you feel that disciple-making isn't happening as much in our churches? Man, I've got a lot of reasons, a few. I'll tell you two. Um, and let me just preface this by saying I love 
the King James Version of the Bible. Did I not say that? I love the King James Version. It is the staple Bible for over 300 years. No Bible rivaled it. 1611, it was a gift to the king. It took them three years to go ahead and translate it from the Greek and Hebrew. Six different committees, three different cities, Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster. Took them three years to edit it, nine months to go to press. Did I not mention, Jason, I love the King James Version? And the reason I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek is I did this uh, I shared this before in the past, and then I got a lot of emails. You don't love the King James. I love the King James. <laughs> here's the challenge with the King James Bible. And you know this from studying the way translations work. The translators have a choice on certain words and, and based on the manuscripts they have. So the translators decided to translate two key texts, I think, that have shaped our perception and perspective of disciple-making for years. One is Matthew 28, the other is Ephesians 4. You can look them up online. Here's the first one. Matthew 28, 18, or 19 reads this way. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. For some reason, the translators decided to translate Matthias, which we know as disciple, make disciples, as teach. And one of the challenges is that stayed uh, as the staple Bible for 300 years until the early 1920s, when years later, the ASV and some of the others, RSV, changed it. The New King James changes it. Every modern Bible has make disciples. But for 300 years, it's, it was teach. And I think what's happened is we've gone to the nation to teach. And, you know, disciple making includes teaching, but it's more than that. Right. What, what I tell people is making disciples uh, is not a class you take. It's not a seminar you sign up for. It's not a course you complete. It's not a degree you earn. It's not a 12-week study. It's not a 40-day uh, gathering. I, I tell people this way. Discipleship is not a class you take. It's the course of your life, right? The other challenge is in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And the original King James, again, which I love, translates the <laughs> verse this way. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, watch this. Equip the saints or perfect the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ, for maturity in a sense. And so for years, now we know the translators put that comma in as a choice. It's not in the Greek or Hebrew. So if you look at the text that way, you will think that the goal of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, the goal of them, the mentors, is to do three things to perfect the saints or equip the saints, comma, to do the work of ministry themselves, comma, and to build up the body of Christ. Now, we know modern translations have changed this. And if you look in your modern translation, you'll see the comma's gone. The verse reads very differently that way. Notice this. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, verse 11, are to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, and if you equip the saints to do the work of ministry, then the body of Christ is built up. And this, Jason, is the aha moment of my entire ministry. Here's what I realize. Mature, so if you label the verse, 11 is mentors, 12 is ministry, 13 is maturity. The listeners are, are going to appreciate this. What I've realized is ministry is the pathway to maturity. That's good. There are some areas of maturity that you will never attain to, your people will never attain to, until they engage in some level of ministry. Now, as pastors and leaders, we do just the opposite. Because what we say is this, 
you keep coming to church, Mike. You, you, listen, eventually you're going to be able to teach that class. Eventually you're going to be able to serve overseas. And, and after you get that sheepskin, Joe, then we'll go ahead and let you in. But what Paul is showing us here is this, two things. One, success is not the pastor or the staff executing all the ministry. It's them equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. When I went to Long Hollow, I told our church publicly, I said, you can gauge how effective my ministry is at the end of a season of time, not by how well I visit hospitals, not by how well I even I preach the word, not by how well I even lead our staff, not by how well uh, I do anything in the church myself, although that's important. But I want you to gauge my effectiveness by how well I equip our staff and you to partner with ministry, to take ownership of the ministry. Why? Because I'm taking away your God-given ability that God is giving you to do ministry. But here's the second thing I learned. Not only is success gauged by how well we, we get others to be equipped for ministry. Secondly, it's how people are only going to grow to certain areas of maturity when they engage in ministry. And so here's the thing Mike Breen said, which, which is really helpful. If you seek to build a church, you rarely produce disciples. We all want to grow church. We all, we all want to reach people. We all, want to, we all want to see people saved. But if you seek to build a church, you rarely produce disciples. But watch this, Jason. If you seek to make disciples, you always get the church. Wow. Always get the church. Yeah. So that being said, what, what advice would you give to a, a lead pastor in regard to his role in helping promote the need to return to disciple making and, and make that a part of the life of, of the people of the church? You know, I asked uh, Bill Hall, who's been a big writer of this, and Dr. Robert Coleman, Master Plan of Evangelism, what would pastors need to do as a first step to start a disciple making movement? Both of them said almost the same thing independently. First of all, pastor, and I had to do this too, so I'm not throwing stones. Pastors have to repent for not making disciples for so many years, right? I'm like, okay, right. Bill, I get that, right? But Bill, give me something practical. He went on to say some things, and I, and I will give you a couple of things I've learned along the way. First of all, and we know this is a leadership principle, we cannot expect from others what we're not emulating ourselves, right? Right. So I, I can't expect my people to be in the word and prayer if I'm not in the word and prayer. I can't expect my people to be investing in their kids if I'm not investing in my kids. I can't expect our people to make disciples who make disciple makers unless I'm doing that. So I would say the greatest spiritual thing a pastor listening could do is this. Pray about God giving you three to five men that you can invest your life in for the next 12 months and challenge them at the end of 12 months to replicate the process and you watch what God does. See, what Discipleship's done at, at, at Brainerd, I pastored a church before Long Hollow, Brainerd Baptist, it became a movement in the church. It just blew open like wildfire. In fact, when I left, we weren't planning on this, but we had more people involved in discipleship groups of three to five than we did in our entire life group structure. And people say, well, well how'd that happen? And here's how it happens. When discipleship takes root in the local church, biblical discipleship, it becomes a fire in the pews. It becomes a fire in the padded seats. And Leonard Ravenhill said this, you don't have to advertise a fire, it advertises itself. The greatest billboard you're gonna have for people wanting to be a part of your church, the greatest invite you're gonna have 
for people wanting to be a part of your church is going to be the men and women whose hearts get turned on fire for Jesus. Here's why. They can't help but talk about it. They can't help but raise a holy hand in worship. They're not When somebody falls in love with Jesus, they're going to give more. They're going to go more. They're going to preach the gospel more, right? You don't have to beg them to do that. They're going to do that out of the overflow of what God's doing in their life. Yeah, that, now that's good. And even as you're talking about that very practical advice, which I love and which, you know, pastors can just hang on to and implement, uh, very simple even, you know, taking the three to five and just pouring your life into them and yeah. begin to live that out. And as you're saying that, I can't help but think back to your book, The Forgotten Jesus, the one that's just being released, and think about how Jesus was kind of doing that same thing with his disciples. He had his 12 initially, but then he had those who were even kind of closer to him that he was pouring into. Yeah, Jesus had, in a sense, he ministered in five distinct groups. Uh, the crowd, the large crowd, he ministered to the uh, corporate gathering, uh, which is the larger group, 12070. But he spent, and here's what blew me away, and, and I talk a lot about this in, in Rediscovering Discipleship and Forgotten Jesus. Jesus' words are not only inspired, uh, and Jesus' uh, model for ministry is not only inspired, but his method for ministry is inspired, right? So he decided to reach the world by calling 12 men. I mean, think about it. He didn't he didn't go on. Uh, he didn't. He didn't write it in the clouds. He didn't speak from a global megaphone from heaven. He decided to entrust it to twelve men. And here's what you're going to be blown away by: if you study the New Testament Gospels, you'll realize that Jesus restricted ninety percent of his time to twelve men. And out of the twelve, he restricted a, a large portion of his time to three: James, John, and Peter. And uh, which I call the D group. That's where we get this exclusive gender exclusive model of disciple making with men with men, women with women for the purpose of accountability and reproducibility. And here's how you know if you have a discipleship movement in your church. The discipleship group is not complete until the mentee becomes a mentor or the player becomes a coach, because if not, it's just a Bible study and Bible studies are good. We need Bible studies, but it's more than studying the Bible. I tell people. A lot of you don't need another Bible study. You need to take the Bible you've studied, and you need to pass it on to someone else. That's powerful. Robbie, man, it's been so good to have you with us. You've encouraged us to explore more deeply the, the Jewishness of Jesus, as you've shared so well in your new book, The Forgotten Jesus. And I also want to thank you for the challenge you've given us to take seriously our role as disciple makers, right, and to really be intentional just as Jesus was. Yeah. Um, real quickly, for those who are, are listening to our podcast, um, if they want to connect with you, what are some ways that they could do that? Uh, our sermons are online. They can go to uh, longhollow.com and uh, they can hear uh, the weekly preaching of the word. Uh, they can connect with me on Twitter uh, or Instagram, rgality, just my name, rgality. And uh, yeah, that's how they can connect. Awesome. Well, I thank you so much for uh, taking time to share with us and with our audience. We certainly appreciate it. A lot of great things I know that uh, that we can take and we can apply right away in our ministry settings. So we certainly appreciate your time, brother. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on today's episode. We certainly hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you are indeed finding value from the Church Leaders podcast, we'd appreciate you taking just a few moments to jump over onto iTunes and to leave us a review. 
Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders find our podcast so they can benefit as well. We thank you so much in advance. And until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.